Have you ever stopped to think about yourself and your story? If someone were to write your memoir, what would it say? We all seek some level of authenticity, but have trouble removing the labels and finding our whole story. Welcome to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. In this program, we'll explore diverse stories on identity to help determine what is truly yours. Now, here is your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. As we embrace our COVID confinement and try to stay buoyant about it, it is important to think about other people for whom this is an even greater disturbance, and counting our blessings is a part of that. Today, we speak with Miriam Feldman, author of a new memoir published by Turner Publishing called He Came In With It, A Portrait of Motherhood and Madness. It's a searing account of descent into schizophrenia by the author's firstborn, her son, Nick, and its impact on the entire family. Everyone was triggered, both positively and otherwise. Welcome, Miriam. Thank you very much. He came in with it is such an accomplishment. It's raw, it's hip, it's sentimental, it's unsentimental, langorious, whiplashed, all in one. There's a long list of adjectives, but most of all, I felt it was a long, deep dive for you, Miriam. Uh, It really feels as though you traveled back in time and relived all of the last um, the years since 2004 when Nick was diagnosed. And I feel as though you took yourself uh, and even your, your family mentally um, through the therapeutic value of writing um, and putting words to your feelings. Can you talk to us a little bit as a visual artist, you're an amazing painter, uh, about the process for healing that writing this book may have created for you? Well, it's interesting you should use the term deep dive because that's exactly what it was and it really was kind of jumping off a cliff into unknown waters. I thought I knew this story and I knew what I wanted to say and the... Writing of the book was really kind of a transmigration. It was not what I expected at all. At first, I just sat down and started to write, and um, I was a little concerned how much I could remember in terms of details and things like that. And one of the interesting things I learned is that everything is right there in your head. You just have to access it. As I started writing, I would remember things daily or not even daily, hourly. And I would have, I had a post-it pads next to me. And every time I would remember something, I would jot it down. And then at the end of the day, I would arrange all the post-its on the walls. And pretty soon my writing room looked like, ironically, the scene from um, A Beautiful Mind where Robert Nash is workshop in the back Mm -hmm. there where he has all the papers everywhere. And, um, and so then I would start sort of color coding things and writing it and, and organizing things. And it became very, very visual, which is natural to me in the way that I do things. And, um, you know, I, I didn't even realize that when you wrote, because I'm new to this, that writing a book is not just one time sitting down and writing it. So I basically went through it two or three times over the year, year and a half I was writing it. And the form and the content of the book changed over that time and brought me to a much clearer understanding 
of what the experience had been to me and certainly the other members of my family and really what was important and what wasn't because you have to do this culling process of throwing out what isn't important and keeping what is important. And I was surprised to learn myself things that were important that I hadn't really paid attention to before. Right. These are not um, editing issues as much as um, prioritizing what's really present for you, right, in the experience and what resonates for you in the experience. It's a whole different um, journey. But, of course, I I love the idea of wallpapering with um, color-coded Post-it notes. Uh, This this sounds all too familiar to me, but I, of course, would love to know what all the different color codes meant. But I I really want to just get back to the idea. It's clear that this is a really multi-level, multi-layer nuanced and um, very revelatory memoir. It is your story, but it's also Nick's. And I wondered, how has he responded to your telling it? How has your family, who was very involved in you know, nearly every scene, every page, um, how are your family supporting your writing experience? And do they feel the same kind of um, new layer of understanding for it? I don't know that they feel a new layer of understanding. I think that they, um, they're very supportive of me. Um, when I started writing, I decided that there was no point in doing this thing if I wasn't absolutely honest and open about it. And so no, nobody read anything until the whole first draft was done because I decided that I had to get it out in a very clear and uninterrupted way. Once I had the first draft done, I gave it to everybody to read because I felt that I was talking about and telling stories that were quite revealing and intimate. And I told them, you know, if there's anything in here that you don't want in here, tell me and I'll take it out. And nobody asked me to take anything out. That's so cool. The only interesting thing, or the one, in- one interesting thing, was my youngest daughter, Rose, after she read it, she said to me, you know, there are several things in here that I remember quite differently than how you tell them, but this is your story. It's your experience of this, so I would never ask you to change anything. Uh, so that's... I really appreciated that. Totally. It's validation and, you know, whisper down the lane. There, you know, we all know we come away with different impressions um, from different experiences. But I love that. Now, the only one who's different is Nick, excuse me, sorry, is Nick, you know, um, because of Nick's circumstance, because of the schizophrenia. I mean, Nick doesn't sit around reading books and um, he hasn't read the book. He knows about it. Mm-hmm. And he knows what it is. I've told him it's the story of our family and me, and especially Nick and myself and the schizophrenia. And he knows all of that. And he also knows that we've used a self-portrait that he did when he was 16 as the cover of the book. It's stunning. And he knows that. And he's very, yeah, he's very proud about that. And... Um, <clears throat> Occasionally he said, well, yeah, I want to read it sometime, but he hasn't read it. And I have a certain amount of conflict about the fact that I've written this very exposing story about Nick. Um, Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things that aren't in the book. There are things that I've experienced through this 
journey with him that I'd never uttered to another human being on this planet, and I never will. Mm-hmm. Things that are just too tough or too private. Too private, but yeah. I felt well, that I had to tell the story, and I had to tell it honestly, and I do grapple with a certain amount of an ethical question as to whether I have the right to tell this story, but I've decided that I've earned this intimacy. I'm telling it as my story, and I think, honestly, if Nick were to wake up tomorrow and be 100% better and not have schizophrenia anymore and sit down and read this book, he'd probably be unhappy with me that I revealed this much about him. But I decided that if he woke up tomorrow and wasn't sick anymore, that'd be good enough for me. He could be mad at me. I'll take the mad. Right, we'll take it. was better. We'll <laughs> take it. The um, yeah. cover... The cover portrait um, is compelling and is actually one of the reasons I wanted to invite you on right away. It reminds me of Egon Schiele. It's a kind of a watercolor uh, portrait, but it's beautifully um, emotional and just very evocative. I think that, you know, you do have to respect, you know, with memoir, there's always going to be a little bit of discomfort, right? If you didn't write it, and make it uncomfortable for yourself. You didn't write a good memoir. And, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert talks a lot about, you know, you're becoming naked to the public and you do have to remember which private parts do you still want to keep covered up with a little fig leaf. And you've done that, Miriam. And it sounds to me that you've been fair um, and even-handed and everyone comes to it from a different, you know, level. Maybe someday Nick will take a look at it and maybe he'll want to write something, you know, himself. Everyone does have a voice and you are very, um, I think, respectful of that. The um, definition of schizophrenia, I know that everybody thinks, we, we all think we know what it is, but I, I had to dig a little deeper for myself um, and go into the DSM, which is <laughs> revered and reviled in um, even parts. A psychotic disorder characterized by disturbances in thinking, that is cognition, emotional responses, responsiveness and behavior. These um, include, and this is what we're more familiar with in colloquial terms, hallucinations, delusions, disorganized thinking and speech, abnormal motor behavior, including canatonic um, actions or non-actions. And these signs and symptoms are associated with marked social or occupational dysfunction. Loosening of associations is one of the prime characteristics and there are subtypes, catatonic, disorganized, paranoid, residual, and undifferentiated. I just needed that very literal view, um, and it contextualized a lot of the experiences that you did have with Nick, you know, such as when you went to your, you know, very touching, all of it's touching, but very tender Mother's Day lunches where, you know, he basically wouldn't utter a word and, and say, thank you, Mom, where are my cigarettes? And off you went. I mean, it, an inordinate amount of patience and tolerance that you developed, Um and I don't know if you thought, did you think of yourself as thin-skinned or thick-skinned or any of the above before all this started? Interesting. Before it started, I, I'm, I've always been a very impatient person. Now, being the mother of four teaches you patience to some degree, but schizophrenia really taught me patience because it's something that is 
not only out of your control, but in a sense, out of your comprehension. And not because I'm not a doctor, because the doctors don't even know. I mean, it's, schizophrenia is bespoke for each lucky recipient, and um, it's different in everybody. And over the years, over the many years, because Nick's 34 now, this, you know, he was diagnosed at 20, over the years I've learned to speak and read his language. And um, I think only the immediate members of the family, his sisters and myself and his father, quite get that. And I think that's the important thing with a condition or a disease like this is that you have to meet them where they are. You have to figure out a way to understand their language and their reactions and accommodate yourself to that. And that's what over the many years I've done to where now he can say or do or turn his head a certain way and I know what that means and I don't expect the same reactions from him that you would from other people. But he speaks to us just as clearly in his own way. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lovely translation, and I can tell you that it, it, I can see it's documented on the page that this was a struggle. For one thing, we're all perplexed. We can't inner, enter the inner psychic lives of anyone else, let alone someone who is being affected by forces that we can't comprehend, as you say. Um, <clears throat> Nick also had has marked accelerations in certain abilities, um, which I wondered if they were present, his spatial configuration and mathematical problem solving, also his very in tune um, intuitiveness with you. Um, You write, his inky brown eyes meant mine. It's okay, mom, I understand. I'm just worried about you. I've never seen you like that. And you write, It felt like the sprinkling of pebbles in some brook in the forest. I felt the first few drops of a great rain. I saw it then. He understood more than I did. And it's so interesting to me that he grasps you as well, that he also had these other incredible talents, which you put to good use when you were developing one of your uh, beautiful murals, right? He came in and and helped you to figure out the the spatial relation. This scene was so interesting to Mm -hmm. me. Yeah, you know, um, when he was a little boy, we he was the boy that we thought this kid's going to grow up to run the world. You know, he was he was just talented and charming and smart, and he was kind of a the ringleader of all the kids. And but he always had a compassion and an understanding. Uh, that seemed beyond his years. You know, I remember once when we we were little and we were with another family and we were on a camping trip and we went to a place uh, where they had all these fish in a pond and the other little boys started doing what little boys do and they thought it was funny and they were throwing rocks at the fish because there were so many in there and they could just throw rocks at them. And, you know, Nick was maybe seven or eight and these boys were 11, 12, 13, so they were older and they were cooler. But he was so upset and so appalled that they were throwing rocks at these fish and not because the fish were dying because he and his dad fished. They go fishing, but there's a code of ethics to fishing. He was appalled at the 
you know, the barbarian aspect of just the unfairness of throwing a rock at a fish. Mm-hmm. And um, now when I look at him at 34 and, you know, I think of who that boy was going to be, and that's a very hard thing for a mother. I mean, I think as I talk to now, now that I'm an activist and I'm involved in advocating for the mentally ill, I meet so many mothers, and the thing that I hear over and over again is they miss their their child. Like, the, where where is he gone? Somebody came and took him away. And that mm-hmm. is kind of what schizophrenia does. Um, and I look at him now, and, you know, schizophrenia is arguably the worst or one of the worst mental illnesses. It's certainly one of the most severe, and it manifests and presents itself in ways that, quite honestly, are ugly and scary and can be violent. I mean, it's terrible. We see people on the street screaming and yelling. I mean, everybody knows what that is, and I don't think that there's any reason to pretend otherwise. So you have this disease, and the thing that is most... um, comforting to me is that my son was afflicted by this terrible disease and even this disease that could be arguably also termed evil, even this disease that has this evil, ugly aspect to it could not touch Nick's intrinsic goodness. He is still gentle and good and wouldn't harm a fly and has that compassion in him, though, what, however blunted from the disease, this disease has not changed his intrinsic goodness. And that's something that I am so proud of him and I'm so grateful for. Absolutely. It's profound um, that you can still see him. Um, as it were, and feel his empathic nature, that there's connectivity between the two of you, I think is also important, and that you see his essence, the essence of him as a person. Um, There is such a loss, and there's such a loss of expectations of what this boy will become. But, you know, I think the fact that you have uh, done this delving into where he is and coming to where he is, and then speaking for others, it's hugely important. Um, I wanted to just ask you, uh, we have about a minute before the break, and maybe this is something we're going to speak about afterwards, but I just want to prompt you with this idea. You were easily the emotional anchor for your family, as many mothers are, but you especially, you're, you're really kind of an earth mother, a very, um, you know, compassionate person yourself, very relatable, and um, you, you did your really your best as a mother. In being such an emotional anchor for everyone else, I guess what I'm going to be curious about is what anchored you? There were so many times when I wondered, this poor woman, who's there? Who's helping? What's keeping you anchored? Um, and, you know, was it your work? Was it all your friends? You know, you have an amazing assortment of friends. Um, and, and I really want you to speak to that a little bit um, when we come back from the break, because there are many mothers in your position who are experiencing a child with some form of mental illness and how to get through, I think, must be the essential question. So don't go away. We're here with Miriam Feldman, author of a brilliant new memoir. He came in with it. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Miriam Feldman, who's giving us insight into how to get through it. When your son is diagnosed with schizophrenia, it didn't happen overnight, and all of your coping mechanisms didn't appear overnight, Miriam. But it is the question that everyone has. And in your great memoir, He Came In With It, you talk about how you survived, how you even learned to thrive. What are some of the ways that, you know, your work, your anchors, your friends, what was it that really got you by? Well, you know, I had a turning point, and it uh, ties into what we were just talking about before the break about the idea of your expectation and your dreams and your hopes for your children or your particular child who gets sick, and those dreams and those imaginings become a real impediment towards acceptance and moving forward. Because all of a sudden, in one fell swoop, everything you knew to be true is gone. You know, I always say schizophrenia or a serious mental illness, it's like a gale force hurricane that blows through your life, and anything that's not nailed down securely is just gone. And so you wake up in this spare more open world where unnecessary and irrelevant and redundant things are gone now. And you just have the basic bones and you have to kind of rebuild the reality with that. And it's horrible and it's tragic. And yet at the same time, it's also kind of a gift because you manage to let go of things that aren't needed or aren't important or don't serve. And my turning point came, you know, 
in the beginning, the way I honestly, the way I coped with this is I'm, I'm what I like to call pathologically functional. No matter what, I always get up and make my bed and brush my teeth and do what needs to be done, even if the whole world's on fire. And so for the first few years, that's what I did. You know, I still had little kids in the house. The two girls were younger. Nick's older sister was off in college. But the two younger sisters were at home. And I had little kids at home. And I was trying to keep everything together. And so I did. I did pretty well, I thought, in the daytime. And then at night, honestly, I would drink a lot of wine. And mm-hmm. um a habit that I got was once the kids were in bed, I would go into the bathroom and I would run the shower and I would lay on the cold tile floor and cry hysterically mm-hmm. because I thought nobody could hear me, which wasn't true anyway. I've since learned, but yeah, I was, I did a lot of hiding, which is something I would not suggest to people because the kids know anyway. So one day I came out of the bathroom and um, after one of my crying jags, and there was my youngest, and I was busted. And she said to me, Mom, you're crying. Why are you crying? And I said, I'm crying because I miss your brother. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, what do you mean you miss Nick? Nick's not gone. Nick's here. And I said, yeah, he is, but he's not who he was supposed to be. And she looked at me. She's nine, maybe. And... She said, yeah, he is. It's just not what you thought. And she turned around and went into her room. And I sort of plopped down into the window seat in the hallway, and I just sat there. And it was almost like this feeling of, like, all the dominoes tipping over and landing. And I thought, that's it. And I've returned to that moment. I still do, what, 15 years later. That moment of, yeah, he is who he is, and it's not what I thought, but this is how he came to us. This is how he came, in, and that's the title of the book. This is how he came to us, and I damn well better readjust my expectations and mm-hmm. be his mother. And I learned that from my nine-year-old. And out of the, yes, out of the mouth that, of babes. I, yeah, you're not kidding. I mean, I, I still sometimes when I hit a wall sit and think about that. And so after that, what really helped me get through it is, yes, of course, my friends. I mean, I don't know what I would do in this life without my women friends. I have just an army of women with me. And now even more, because now I consider all the moms of all the kids dealing with these illnesses as my friends, too. I mean, we're, you know, I have this network of people, and I know that it just even a, in a more sort of ethereal way, we're all there for each other. But definitely, um, pragmatically, my friends. And, um, yes, my work. I mean, I'm a painter. I'm, I'm a maker, I'd like to say. I, you know, I, I, I'm always mm-hmm. making something. And it's a painting or it's a book or it's sewing or something. Or, you know, I, if, I'm, if my hands are working, I'm okay. And um, making art though it did sort of lay fallow for a while in the worst of this, um, I've come back to it with a vengeance, and it, once again, saves my life. Mm-hmm. And this letting go, um, you know, you, you felt at first that your son's personality, as you knew him, had been hijacked. 
your daughter Rose tunes you into an alternate reality of, of acceptance of, you know, why and where and how he's come is what we're meant to accept and actually learn from. Um, and this stripped down idea, you know, it also just reminds me of this pandemic where, you know, we are really just looking back now at just fundamentals. What do we really need? Um, and alarmingly, it's not too much. It's not what we thought. Um, yeah. But we we do need some time for reflection, that's for sure. But I, I also wondered about the role of yoga, and you took it up as a practice. And some of the more Eastern philosophies are more um, accepting, right? There is an acceptance of suffering, and there's an acceptance of the idea of letting go. Did that practice also weigh in? And, you know, how, and if so? Oh, very much. And it was really all kind of just a stumbling into it because, I, again, you know, pathologically functional and also type A personality would pretty much describe the first three quarters of my life um, where, you know, I just worked and I, I, you know, I'm not a particularly religious person. I'm not a particularly spiritual. Well, I wasn't. You know, very pragmatic. I liked empirical evidence or I wasn't interested. And um, I stumbled into the yoga studio because my other exercise that I used to do was way on the other side of town and very expensive. And once my life exploded, there was just no room for that anymore. And there was a yoga studio around the corner from the house. And it was affordable and it was right there. So I thought, okay, this is after the worst of it, the worst few years where I decided I've got to get healthy or I'm just dying here. So I decided, okay, exercise will help my body and my mind. And so I enrolled in this yoga class and at first I went into it very skeptical and thought it was all a bunch of woo-woo stuff, but I would at least get the physical benefits from it. But as the weeks went on and um, the voices of the teachers who were by and large these young women who would be talking about the yogic sutras and the philosophies of yoga and all these different things. And I would look at these young, perfect, beautiful, you know, 20-something girls, and I would think, what do they know about suffering? What do they know about acceptance? Nothing bad has ever happened to them yet. But as Mm -hmm. time went on, the words started getting into my brain and into my psyche, and all of a sudden, they started to resonate. And what started to resonate, and that keys back to this thing that Rose said to me, was surrender. Now, being the type A personality, I always thought that surrender was a signal of weakness and giving up and failure. Like you wave the white flag, you surrender, you lost the war. Mm-hmm. And I came to understand surrender and acceptance in a completely different way as an indicator of strength and intelligence, of knowing when you can't change something and either moving through it or moving around it or allowing yourself to reside next to it. But I was big on throwing myself up against brick walls over and over and over. And I learned that surrender is strength and it's intelligence. And um, I live completely differently in this world now that I'm a yoga practitioner. I still... 10, 15 years earlier, I still practice yoga every day, and I also became a meditator, which is something I never thought I would be able to do. I barely can sit still, but I do that every day, too, and it has changed 
how I live in this world and in a good way. Right. I, it it brings a, a certain wisdom and serenity, um, you know, obviously the serenity prayer, but not to get preachy because um, as a fellow obsessive, I mean, being obsessive is its own brand of self-cruelty and torture. And I think, you know, it's really, the book is, is really lavish with great detail. And there's a lot of scenes where you do come up against something insurmountable, but you're still insistent. And all of us do this. And there's a kind of a an arc through the story, through the book, He Came In With It by Miriam Feldman, of realizing this point of truth, of peace, and as you say uh, so well, as uh, of surrender. Um, and I really think it's really a, a very exquisite, well, the book is its own um, brand of just total immersion, but it is an exquisite arc. Um, you do talk about, uh, he came in with it, the title of the book. Um, now, you're based in L.A., and I think that's another testimony to exactly how pragmatic you are, that you are empirical, fact-based, you want the evidence. You know, this is um, you know a testament to being non-stereotypical as well, but the book title comes from an, an, astro, an astrological reading of your son Nick's birth chart. The astrologer said that there was a virtual constellation of factors all pointing to schizophrenia um, and that he came in this way into the world. Um, and it, it felt thematic to me um, to, and maybe that sort of released a certain burden from you also, because it seemed to me that there was a real theme of attribution, needing to know how this got this way. It was almost more important at times than that it got this way for Nick. Um, and I, I think that is the, the mark of, of you know, a, a meaning maker, thinker type. Um, but how important is it to you now to know how and why this happened? Well, it sure would be nice to know, but I also am aware now that it really is unknowable. I'll never know, you know. And I mean, in my bad moments, I still lie in bed at night and relive and reenact every moment of his life trying to figure out what it was. I mean, I think that when you grow a human being in your belly... You know, there's a certain intrinsic responsibility that you'll never shake, where I think, well, I grew him. I got, you know, I did something. But that's in my gut and in my, you know, psyche. In my head, it doesn't matter. I mean, it just, this is what it is. I'm much more interested in finding out at this point what I can do, what we can do to improve his life. You know, it happened. He's 34 years old. He's halfway through his life. I'm not going to reverse it. And I, I, don't, I don't fixate on that anymore. Good. And a sense of forgiveness for yourself. And I hope that that worms its way into, Miriam. You've been such an incredibly attentive mother. You went to extraordinary lengths and, you know, the, the, the dumpster dive. I mean, that scene, it just... <laughs> stuck with me where you were cleaning out Nick's apartment and moving him upstate to Washington and the state of Washington to your farm or nearby. And you needed his 
driver's license. And in the process of cleaning, he allowed you to sweep it up and put it in the trash. Apparently, we may never know. Um, And you spent this entire evening going through the trash in the dumpster. It's it's really nightmarish. Um, But I, I do hope that you'll offer yourself a lot of generosity and forgiveness for for being really, I think, an extraordinary mother. Um, there is, of course, always this idea of why and, you know, the stress diathesis model, was that at work because everyone has a proclivity for a disease and then there's maybe exacerbated by stressors. Um, but at the end, I think you did a lovely job in the book, and I'm not going to, there's not going to be any spoiler alerts here. You have to read the book. Um, there's a really a lot of thoughtfulness that goes into your own understanding of the origins um, of this and how it might have been uh, part of um, Nick's adolescence and a process that, you know, that he was going through. Um, but you've done a lot of heavy lip lifting. And I really think that, you know, each of us is challenged in ways that we need to learn things. And I think the word obsession came to mind so often in reading your book. Um, and I think that this overcoming that was, is, is absolutely, um, it's astounding and astonishing of, of an evolution for you. Um, I'm going to come, when we come back from the break, uh, we have a couple minutes left. We'll give you the, you know, the real firm facts about who Miriam Feldman is. But if you really want to know who you are or who she is, read the book. He came in with it, A Portrait of Motherhood and Madness. Um, there is just a whole quintessential conversation about motherhood, Miriam. And I think that um, I'm going to read a passage from the book a, l- a little bit later, but in the beginning, it seemed to be equated with protection. You were protecting Nick. You were protecting others from knowing everything about what was going on with Nick. You were protecting yourself a bit. Um, you, you really felt to me like a fortress almost. And at the end, you know, I would say, is there an evolution for you towards becoming more open, having a little bit more honesty and integrity with your relationships and becoming more porous? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, one thing I just wanted to say, thank you very much for all the accolades about being an extraordinary mom, but I really feel strongly about this, you know, um, I don't think I'm an extraordinary mom. I just think I'm a good mom. And I think that if you're going to be a mother, that's the baseline. You better be at least a good mom. And so I'm just doing what any mom should do. It's not anything that special. You know, I used to look at when my kids were younger and I had, you know, four perfect, beautiful little kids. And I would see sometimes these mothers with a child in a wheelchair with MS or Parkinson's or, or, you know, one of these genetic diseases. And I would look at them with these kids and I would think, I couldn't do that. How do they do it? How do they do it? And then Nick got sick and now I realized, well, of course I would do it. Of course you just do it. You know, it's your kid and you just do it and you don't, necessarily deserve any big brownie points for it it's your job and you do it and I think that most mothers would and I just I I think that it's important to give moms credit I don't think that I'm doing anything more than any other mom would do Mm -hmm. and that trash incident actually was quite transcendent 
wasn't I, fun while I was in there, but it brought me to a good place. <laughs> very, I mean, it's it's very cool. And of course, very um, true what you say, Miriam, the baseline of being a good mother. There's so much involved with that. And to the credit of all mothers everywhere, I just wondered, you know, after the break, um, whether you thought the job had evolved for you, uh, as it always does. Don't go away. We're here with Miriam Feldman, who wrote the memoir. He came in with it. It's a pretty damn honest book, and you'll get a lot of good insight from it on how to live, how to be a mother, how to be a person. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania, and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're sitting with Miriam Feldman, who wrote a newly released memoir. He came in with it, A Portrait of Motherhood and Madness. It's published by Turner. And um, it's something that you would want to get your hands on if you just wanted to try to figure out anything because there's a real there's a real dance around uh, denial of issues facing issues there's a real arc toward um, becoming accepting and um, it's a real exercise in problem solving which is what I've often thought art is Um, artists um, of which Miriam Feldman is a very accomplished one let me give you the nuts and bolts here Miriam Feldman is an artist writer and mental health advocate who splits her time between Los Angeles 
where she has a studio and her farm in rural Washington state. She has been married to her husband, Craig O'Rourke, also an artist for 34 years, and they have four adult children. Their 33-year-old son, Nick, has schizophrenia. Uh, and with an MFA in painting from Otis Art Institute, Miriam founded Damar Feldman Studios, a distinguished mural and decorative arts company in 1988. At the same time, she brought she built a strong career as a fine artist represented by Hamilton Galleries in Santa Monica. When Nick was diagnosed in 2004, Miriam became an activist and writer. With firsthand knowledge of our mental health system, she decided to be an advocate for those who have no voice. She serves on the advisory board of Bring Change to Mind, the non-for-profit founded by Glenn Close, and she writes a monthly blog for their website. Miriam is active in the leadership of NAMI Washington and writes for their newsletter, uh, and she's a frequent guest on mental health podcasts, active on Instagram, where she's created a community of family and loved ones dealing with mental illness. You can see her, visit her on her website, miriam-feldman.com or Instagram. And what a great outreach you've done, Miriam. Um, this this new uh, circle, this community that you've created is going to get larger now with the book. Uh, I think you realize I that. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. It's the biggest outreach yet. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's something um, where, you know, you, you talk about this. I want to give people just a little flavor for the book. Here's a quote. All I knew was fear. My entire world was a rickety house of cards, like the kind I used to build with my cousins as a kid. And instead of figuring out what was wrong, I just kept adding more cards, like it wasn't going to fall. So here's Miriam, stripped away yourself. You don't glamorize yourself, your role. But as a mother, did your perception of it change over time? Oh, completely. I'm a completely different person now than I was 20 years ago. I mean, I never in a million years would have chosen to do this, obviously, at the cost of my son's sanity. But this whole experience has turned me into a much better person. And not only a better person, but like I said, better in how I move through the world. When I was a younger adult and raising my family and I lived in kind of a she middle class neighborhood in LA and there's a lot of fancy people. We didn't actually really even belong to that neighborhood, but there we were. And I spent a lot of time trying to keep up this facade and feel like I belonged there. And the truth is, I think as an artist and kind of a misfit, I always felt like an outlier. And, um, when Nick got sick, it was just like I threw a band into the wind, you know, not right away, but eventually that's what it did for me. Um, now I live in a much more authentic way. I don't really think about how I look from the outside or what, you know, the facade doesn't matter to me anymore. Once my whole life was blown up, again, like I was saying, that's the freedom, that's the gift of something like this happening is you rebuild your life in a different way. And so, yeah, I'm a much more... Matter of fact, on this kind of person, and um, the other thing, I I feel like once you have one of the perks of having a kid with schizophrenia is you become officially embarrassment proof. 
once you've had the police on your front porch numerous times and taking your screaming kid down the street and God knows what else happening, mm. you really are beyond embarrassment. And there's a real freedom in not worrying about those things anymore. You know, it just, again, you focus on what really matters. Absolutely. I found it somewhat coincidental when I looked at your website, the Jamar, the Jamar um, Feldman part where you were a muralist, that there was a lot of Trump loy and that when you're talking about facade and, you know, it was working, it was working through me that, you know, it, at one point you did a lot of Trump loy, you know, the trick of the eye. And it somehow coincided with this arc of becoming you know, more authentic and less aspirational and less caring of of what other people think. Um, I think the fact that you work now as a community activist bring change to mind. Um, the 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 mission of this um, is that actress and activist Glenn Close Close founded. Um, co-founded Bring Change to Mind in 2010 after her sister Jessie Close was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and her nephew, Galen Pick, was uh, diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. They say every individual who speaks out inspires another and another. That's how we'll end the stigma around mental illness. That's how we'll bring change to mind. And I wondered, is that partly what you had in mind when you wrote this book, Miriam, or why now? Why do it now? Well, yeah, that's exactly. I mean, it's very intuitive. And also, um, I really appreciate you recognizing the irony and the significance of the fact that I spent my days doing Trump Lloyd and then going home to the life that I was trying to create a large trompoy on the front of my house, but it didn't really work. There was an irony there. But um, I think that you're exactly right. There, there, is, um, there is such a need for people to tell their stories. You know, when this first happened, and I remember sitting in my living room looking out my big, plate glass window at the street and feeling like I was all alone in the world, that Mm. outside was this plethora of healthy, happy people and families, and behind my door was this dark, ugly secret. If I had been able to pick up a book like mine and read it at that point, it would have changed everything, just to know I wasn't some kind of a freak or there wasn't something just awful and aberrant happening behind my door. You know, now I realize everybody has some sort of connection to mental illness, mental health issues, and we need to tell our stories. If we don't talk about it, everybody will continue to feel alone. And if I, if one mom can accidentally stumble over my book at the point I was in the beginning and find some solace and find a portal to moving into and through this experience, that's what I want. I love the word portal, um, and I love that you're giving people a portal, and that's the best kind of reason to write a book, I think, um, this you know, offering of yourself as um, a connection. Uh, you also talk about how men and women, uh, being mothers and fathers, respond differently to the stigma and shame of 
of having a son with um, mental illness because you say that your your husband and I know this very well through my own family that the father often will um, project himself onto the son. It's almost a more narcissistic referential um, association that you know this the father is failing because the son is somehow failing. None of which is true, but it is the it is the burden that that people take on, and I, I wondered, um, you know, with your your husband, you have this very catchy kind of hip and um, very close relationship. It's something that you renewed, I think, through this experience. And throughout your story, uh, you maintained your sense of humor. Some people might find that implausible, but it's absolutely true. He came in with it as one of the most readable books ever. And you uh, somehow link it feels almost ancient, Miriam, that this tragedy comedy link that you're able to keep your humor. Uh, I just want people to actually hear, hear a gorgeous example of this writing. Uh, here's Miriam Feldman from He Came In With It. The summer was crushing in Los Angeles. The nights held the heat, making it impossible to sleep. I decided to escape to Washington for a while. We'd put in a garden and the vegetables would be coming in about now. Craig worked on the house and I painted and did thousand piece jigsaw puzzles. (laughs) Another metaphor. It was kind of horrible. Nowhere to look but at the truth and at the trees. I might as well have stayed in therapy. One day in mid-August, the constant harbinger of happiness and woe rang. That's the phone. Ma, it's Lucy. Guess what? You thought, does my blood run cold or do I jump for joy? And I just, I love this, Miriam. It's like, how human can you get? Your, your humor, through your humor, you feel, we feel your vulnerability. Do you think that your humor was also a way of, of coping and getting yourself through mentally whole? Oh, Yeah. I mean, my whole life, not just this event. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I had a very funny father, a father who was a good joke teller and anecdote storyteller. And um, to me, it's just, it's the key to survival. You know what I mean? It's like the, in any bad situation, if you can find some gallows humor, it saves you. And it's certainly what holds my husband and myself together is the ability mm-hmm. in the worst of situations to be able to laugh. For example, in the book, when Nick has his first hospitalization, and, um, you know, all this was so new to us then. I mean, now I understand how all this works, but back then, this was, uh, I could, I'd never imagined a thing like this. When they took him in the hospital, and then we went to visit him, and he, he, he had no shoelaces in his shoes, and he said, yeah, they, they took away my shoelaces. I guess they thought I'd hang myself. And we were making jokes about that and laughing. And I realized now looking back on it, boy, that's kind of chilling. But to us, it was like, it was just too awful to even imagine. And the key to coming together and finding the connection with each other is always human. Right. Even now, and- Nick still can laugh and make he still gets jokes. He still makes jokes and gets jokes, which is really good. 
It is good. It's the healthiest thing possible. Um, because, you know, also even with the anger, and I think you touched on this, the mother love coursing through your veins all the while, that anger is one of the big indicators of how much we care and therefore anger is a sign of love, as, as David White says. Um, your, your work in the field of advocacy, it feels like this is also a flashpoint time to be dealing with um, mental health issues. And I really um, just say to you, congratulations. Um, we're losing our time here, but um, you are someone who is going to make the world better, I think, through this. Has it changed in the one minute we have left? Has it changed for the better? Sort of yes or no? Oh, yes. I love life. (laughs) And we have a good life and we have a happy, strong family. And this is just part of our story. Wonderful. And I think, too, the way you're, you're, this is part of your story that um, it strengthened you. I can feel it. I can hear it in your voice. This is Miriam Feldman. The book is He Came In With It. The best way to reach you, Miriam, miriamfeldman.com or on Instagram. You can buy the book at local indie bookstore or on miriamfeldman.com. Remember, everyone, mental health issues are silent and often invisible. Treat one another with respect, kindness, and compassion, and remember to count your blessings. Till next week, stay safe, everyone. Thank you to our engineers and producer, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Thank you for dropping in. Thank you, Miriam Feldman. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.